You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello, this is Christina from The Good GP. The following episode was recorded live at GP19, the annual clinical conference for the RACGP. In this episode, entitled Low Libido, When Desires Don't Match, I interviewed Dr. Sama Balasubramanian and focused on libido from the female heteronormative perspective. Hello and uh, welcome to The Good GP. We're going to kick off with our third of three episodes. We're here at GP19 with a live crowd. Welcome everybody. (laughs) We've had a great afternoon. Our third podcast is being run by Christina. Thanks for the introduction, Sean, and again, welcome to everyone in the room and everyone listening along at home. Um, I'm really excited here to be um, talking with an amazing GP and a great friend of mine, uh, Dr. Sama Balasubramanian, um, and today we're going to be talking on the topic of libido. But before we start, Sama, I'm really interested for you to just tell us a little bit about yourself and especially around your um, experience and, and extra qualifications that you're working towards in sexual health. Absolutely. Thanks, Christina. And I'm really, really excited and happy to be here and grateful to be on your show. I'm a GP in the town of Cowra in Western New South Wales, but I also work part-time in Sydney at RPA Hospital, um, working towards qualification as a sexual health physician with the chapter of physicians at the moment. Um, I'm also finishing my master's in psychosexual therapy through the University of Sydney. So one of my overall goals is actually to be proficient in the topic of sex therapy, which is something that does interest me greatly. And I see sexual health, particularly psychosexual needs, as being an unmet need in the community. And we talk about the elephant in the room, and we're more likely to talk about the elephant in the room when men present to us, particularly around erectile dysfunction. But if we look at the GP literature around sexual desire, there's very little that either the RACGP or any of the GP colleges have covered worldwide when it comes to sexual desire. But that often talks to more of the social and cultural reasons why we don't talk about why women want to have sex in the first place. And that's why it's a real mission and passion of mine that I think GPs are well qualified to provide care in this space and can advocate for patients and the communities in this fashion. Great, Summer. So thank you then with that expertise for joining us today. I want to start off by asking you about definitions. So, you know, the idea of someone presenting to us with low libido, to me, demonstrates a thought process around there being something normal, in inverted commas. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts around what defines normal libido and then, I guess, what defines low libido. Absolutely. So I think when it comes to libido, I mean, we can think of libido or desire, and I'll use the terms interchangeably as the want, wanting to have sex. And I think it's first important to state that an important part of examining this topic together is really dealing with our own assumptions and values when it comes to sex. Because when we talk about sex, the way we have biases and the way we have our assumptions really underpins the way we communicate with our patients. And those biases are either implicit or explicit and they're either hidden from us or we can deal with it. So before posing the questions to our patients, we really need to know what sexual perspective we come from. So I'm a heterosexual, cisgendered male and my experience of what constitutes good sex and a healthy sexual relationship and healthy and appropriate desire derives from that context. So by understanding where we come from, we can be more aware of our biases. In order to talk about low libido, we really need to look at our understanding of the sexual response cycle and we need to sort of think about, and listeners may be familiar with the work of Masters and Johnson and possibly also Kaplan, and they've traditionally suggested that desire precedes arousal, that is the want 
precedes the actual happening or what occurs. And until 2013, the DSM-IV actually delineated hypoactive sexual desire disorder and female sexual arousal disorder. So hypoactive sexual desire disorder was a persisting or a current deficiency of sexual fantasies and desire for sexual activity resulting in marked distress or interpersonal difficulty. On the other hand, female sexual arousal disorder spoke about inability to maintain an adequate lubrication swelling response of sexual excitement. So that was a difference. And what we need to know is this traditional definition presents a challenge because the compartmentalised view of female sexual function actually contradicts our emerging understanding because there's often comorbidity between desire and arousal disorders. Women often express difficulties differentiating desire from subjective arousal and for some women desire and arousal precede each other so it's not necessarily a linear act. So our understanding is developed over time and because we see these as overlapping conditions that's how they're now represented in the DSM-5. And a few modern sex therapists such as Basson suggest that we try and remove the concept of desire as a prerequisite for sexual activity initiation. And what's more important is a woman's willingness to be involved in sexual activity and receive pleasurable sexual stimuli. And women can also experience what we term as responsive desire, which is actually desire or the feeling of wanting to have sex in response to sexual stimuli. So if we were looking at the three major elements of sexual desire, we look at the biological component, which is to do with neuroendocrine physiology that we're still learning about, and that's your internal force or what we call spontaneous desire but it carries its own assumptions and biases because we assume it's there and its assessment and interpretation varies depending on the social and cultural context in which we ask the question. There's the motivational component which talks about cognitive processes and that's really the willingness to engage in sexual activity and we also talk about responsiveness to sexual stimuli and what we really know to know is underpinning our communication to patients is really the concept of sexual safety. That's intent, consent and then pleasure or contentedness. So there is a high degree of variability in terms of normal. And to be quite frank, there's not really an answer. <laughs> that was a very long-winded way to get there. <laughs> but, I <appreciate> yeah. <laughs> but I appreciate the insights, <laughs> as we all do. Okay, so we've kind of established then that there's not really a normal and really then it is actually dependent maybe on the person in front of you. It's yeah. variable between women. But, you know, um, their stage of life as mm. well, because I think that, you know, ultimately it probably can fluctuate depending on their age, what else is going on. Yeah. So I'm interested then to know what factors do play a part in libido. It's, it's a good question, actually. The reality is we, we have to sort of think about what factors potentially can't impact on libido. And I, I do believe that anything in a person's life can affect your sex drive. It's just we haven't studied or considered it all yet. So when we look at the literature again, we look at medical factors, we look at psychosocial factors, and we also have to look at the relationship and cultural context. So if we look at the evidence behind medical factors, we know that varying chronic diseases have been implicated in low sexual desire, but that's also because there's biological effects on physiology, but also psychological consequences of illness as well. But a few conditions that have been studied include thyroid disorders, but this seems to be more of an impact on lubrication and orgasm as opposed to desire. Type 2 diabetes, there is an association but there's little data suggesting there's a neuroendocrine link there chronic pain disorders, menopause. And again, it's difficult to understand the correlation between desire and menopause. And I think a lot of our understanding reflects our biases around ageing and sexuality in the first place and not seeing people as they grow older as being capable of having desire and being sexually desirable beings. Interestingly enough, some of the evidence around surgical menopause from things such as a bilateral salpingoephorectomy suggests that there may be a greater negative impact on desire than a natural age-related problem.
process. There's been lots of medications that have been associated to psychotropics like SSRIs, antipsychotics, antihypertensive medication like beta blockers, hormone influencing medications like GnRH agonists, anticholinergics, and then some of the data around COCP and the combined oral contraceptives. And this is really based in evidence around ethanol estradiol containing contraceptives because ethanol estradiol does increase the proportion of sex hormone binding globulin in the bloodstream and therefore decreases available free testosterone. But again, our understanding around testosterone is really rooted in studies that have shown that giving testosterone may increase desire. So again, the physiological link isn't quite made. If we look at psychosocial factors, we're looking at any condition that changes someone's motivation to have, have sex. It could be an exploration of sexual abuse or trauma or humiliation in the past, stress and fatigue, which I think most of us suffer from at different stages of our lives anyway, high levels of distraction, so a lot on your plate, so things like children, busy life schedules, anxiety disorders, depression, and again, the causality around depression has not really been well established anyway, um, and also body image issues. But what I think we need, we need to stress on more is also the relationship issues and looking at this as a two-person problem, because a partner's sexual dysfunction can contribute, there can be dissatisfaction with the relationship, and the other important thing to consider, particularly when we're dealing with married women, is disempowerment of sexual communication skills, so difficulties in expressing sexual needs and wants, barriers to discussing their fantasies and wishes, and also their suppressed sexual fears as well. And the evidence around culture and its effects suggests that there's evidence that good sexual desire is sort of lower in Eastern Asian countries compared to European and American samples, but there are is issues with the studies and they, they point to this idea that acculturation to a particular set of values is correlated with higher levels of sexual desire. But what we do know is in any of those studies, high levels of religiosity and also family is is attitudes that are negative towards sex can matter a lot in the development. So just one question just to come back. Can you talk about that, the relationship between ageing and, and libido? Because, you know, I think that's one of the more common sort of questions we get yeah. in general practice, particularly as you start to deal with older people. They ask, you know, what's normal and what's not. And, and yeah. is, the, is that sort of, is it a linear thing or is it something that changes over time? Well, it really seems to appear on who's asking the question and why they're asking the question. Mm. What we really should focus on is not whether desire decreases with age, but how to facilitate people feeling desired and being wanted as they get older. That, I think, is more important than whether or not their level of desire drops. Because when it comes to studies examining desire, the reality is no one really knows what question they're asking and therefore we're using a flawed scale to actually examine how desirable or how desired someone feels in the first place. But at the end of the day, I think the important thing to consider is as people get older, we should be asking them these kinds of questions because they're more likely to develop the comorbidities or be on the medications or have those relationship issues that we know can contribute to low desire. So it means we're more on the lookout for opportunism in asking those questions and we can better address them. But I think in terms of ageing and sexuality, that's really where our focus should be, around appropriate history taking and considering the psychosocial context, as opposed to the ageing itself being viewed as a problem. So Sam, I want to just take a step back then because, so I actually work uh, as a GP with special interest in a gynaecology yeah. clinic, specifically in the area of vulval health. So uh, it's not an uncommon presentation to me um, yeah. around libido. It, it kind of wraps into a lot of other presentations That's that correct. come through that clinic. Yeah. I'm interested to know your thoughts um, around how women do present, you know, 
do women mm. typically come up straight up to their GP and say, I'm worried about my libido, I have low libido? Or, you know, what are some of the other ways that they actually can present to us and might be a signal that they're wanting to talk about it? I think the, the main signal that they want to talk about it is it's difficult to say. More often you'll find that if people raise issues around low desire, it's a sign of relationship distress or an issue within the couple's unit. Or if they're presenting to issues with their relationship or you know, anxiety or depression, then concurrently they will just have low desire in the first place. We haven't really trained our patients well to ask these questions. I think that's what it reflects. So it's more a question of we just consider that any patient in front of us can experience a difficulty with desire. So it really comes down to asking appropriate questions and knowing the follow-on questions to be able to get the information we need to help people in the first place. Okay, great. So you've talked then really around, you know, some of those factors that contribute and really, I guess, giving us a good understanding of that multifactorial nature of this presentation. I'm interested to know, you know, as GPs, we are always thinking in the back of our mind around medical causes. Is there anything that you would generally, you know, routinely do or anything that you would specifically, in terms of investigations, to rule out medical causes or anything that you would specifically ask about in order to elicit whether you need to go down the path of underlying course and in investigations? In any case, thinking about the investigations, again, if we look at the evidence, you know, my approach would suggest doing a TSH level because we know that thyroid disorders can be implicated at times. We can think about iron studies of fatigue as a correlator, EUCs and LFTs in that context as well. The interesting thing is actually thinking about certain hormonal testing. So if you suspect hyperprolactinemia, you can do a prolactin level. We can think about estradiol and FSH in appropriate context, particularly if there's irregular menses or issues around premature menopause, for example. And it's also an opportunity to do some STI testing and ensure cervical screening is up to date. Testosterone level measurements are unreliable. And although some people sort of interpret the condition of low desire to imply a biological deficiency of testosterone, the evidence actually suggests there's not a great degree of correlation between circulating androgen levels and people's sexual desire. What we need to think about is the possibility then that laboratory testing will identify an appropriate cause of sexual dysfunction, or Occam's razor if you may, is actually really low. And that's why the outcomes of the investigative process is highly variable and difficult to interpret the results. And that's why it's difficult to interpret results if we haven't framed the problem appropriately. So it means thinking outside our traditional medical model of approaching any psychological condition as cause, you know, suspected problem or DDX, treatment, and then thinking of a positive outcome. That really doesn't speak to socially and culturally complex issues, and we can see why that doesn't work for patients, even with disorders that I may conceitedly say are as simple as depression and anxiety. I think what we should not forget is there are actually really good self-reported questionnaires to assist in patient evaluation, and these are things you can do that prevent the need for you asking the question in the first place. So there's the female sexual function index looking at six domains, so desire, arousal, lubrication, orgasm, satisfaction, and pain. Um, And because sexual problems overlap, questionnaires like like this are really useful to identify which problems are primary and which problems are secondary. We can also supplement this with something like the decreased sexual desire screener or the cause for um, sexual desire scale. But if we look at the consultation itself, what we really need to know is, you know, your rapport, empathy and understanding and willingness to help matters more than the questions you ask. 
But if we're looking at an appropriate model to take a history, we're looking at some, something called the explicit model of sex therapy. So that's the way to structure your consultation that involves permission, listening, specific suggestions and intensive therapy. And we ask for permission at each stage of the consultation to ensure our patients are comfortable. So if we look at the history, you've got medical history for those relevant medical conditions. We can talk about overall physical health, medications. We can snap them, talk about drugs. The sexual history gets a bit different here because it's not just your five Ps. And two really key questions to ask your patients, I think, are what does good sex look like to you? And when was the last time you had good sex and actually felt sexual desire? And tell me about it. So you want to ask questions about when they noticed a problem. Has it been there since the start of their life? And is it limited to a particular partner or a specific situation? So if someone can masturbate but then experience low desire with their sexual partner, that those are very, very different problems. Whereas if there's generalised low desire with all sexual activities, we're more likely to consider previous histories of trauma, conservative background, etc. We also want to talk about people's expectations when it comes to sex. You know, how often do you want to have sex? How often do you think is normal? And also whether your partner experiences sexual problems as well, because that can also contribute and remove people's desires to have sex. What's also important is, again, when, when we view a person as a sexual being, we want to ask them, do they have erotic dreams or daydreams or sexual fantasies? And do they also experience those physical problems that you may be seeing in the clinic that you're at? So vaginal dryness, difficulty in lubrication, vulvodynia, dyspareunia, etc. What we need to know is if sexual activity is pleasurable but low desire exists, our treatments need to focus more around motivation for sex and the cues and triggers for desire in the first place. And you also want to get a grasp on emotional intimacy. So how are things going in the household? And again, that comes down to the psychosocial factors. It's life stresses, it's work, children, lifestyle patterns, especially sleep disorders and you want to know about relationship satisfaction again ability to communicate sexual issues with your partner partner sexual function but we also need to accept that pressure imposed from either party can also exacerbate low desire so if you have someone that's not motivated or doesn't want to have sex forcing them into having sex is not going to fix the problem and they're more likely to not want to have sex more and i think that's really a message our society needs to understand so you've given us a bit of a framework then, or a very thorough framework actually, in terms of um, in terms of approaching these types of consultations. Yep. I'm really keen to know what are some of the you know management strategies that you do prescribe for women in this situation, yep. and specifically that is practical for you know the GPs that are listening without having to be significant expertise but what are some of the things that they can really do to help women mm. who perceive this as an issue for them? It's a very good question. I mean, I think what we need to remember as our role as general practitioners is we're the ones who ask the questions that other people don't ask and we're the ones that can listen when other people don't listen. And asking the question and listening to the response is probably the most therapeutic thing you can do for people because acknowledging a condition is a first step to actually gaining help. What we can do really well is some good patient education. So we talk about this as sex education or sexuality education. So we want to develop it in the context of ageing, you know, an understanding of how ageing affects sexuality, talking about relationship duration and its effect on sexuality. And we can also talk patients through the sexual response cycle and why linearity doesn't really contribute to desire in the first place. It's also important to emphasise and reassure people that there's no one correct way or no one correct level of desire. It's really individualised and it's tailored to the patient. So we need to encourage women and their partners to challenge beliefs around when sex should occur and why sex should occur. It doesn't just happen in the mood. 
So we need to discuss that responsive desire, which is developing desire in response to pleasurable sexual stimuli, and also looking at incentives for sexual activity as well. So it's a really complex issue and, and not just one intervention is going to work. There are a few biological interventions that have been examined. So we're looking at, so the main thing people may have heard about is testosterone therapy. So there's a bit of American data around 300 micrograms per day of testosterone patches for women. And there's evidence that it increases sexually satisfying events about double sort of per month. So from 0.9 to 1.9 times per month. But we don't know anything about the long-term risks. It's off-label use. And there are suggestions that you really need to administer estrogen as well. Because unopposed testosterone without estrogen does increase the risk of cardiovascular morbidity at the same time. Many listeners may be aware of Tibolone, which is something we use in the context of menopause, and there's certainly some marketing around improved sexual desire for Tibolone. But the reality is, again, it's off-label use in that context, and no one really knows whether you can give it to people who aren't menopausal and whether it'll actually help them with their sexual desire. There are some suggestions around adding something like bupropion to people who are on SSRI and having SSRI-related sexual desire loss in the context of depression. But I always think a more logical answer would be looking at a different class of antidepressant in the first place as opposed to adding another medication. The big thing we need to talk about is appropriate referral through things like a mental health care plan if they have an appropriate sexual disorder to things such as, you know, sex therapy. We talk about CBT, we talk about couples therapy and then something called psychodynamic therapy. So to give you a bit brief rundown, sex therapy is essentially techniques that guide the couple from non-sexual physical contact to sexual physical contact. So they're called sensate focus exercise and they really speak to the, the research of Masters and Johnson. So they really guide couple through a slow process, taking turns and providing providing low-key sensual stimulus to each other rather than true sexual stimulation and there's a forbidden or there's a forbidding of penetrative intercourse so that it's non-threatening and it promotes mutual understanding without people being fearful that they'll have to undergo penetration in the first place. There's CBT which really looks at those maladaptive thoughts that provoke those negative emotions in people and that does result in problematic outcomes and it's a bit chicken and egg in terms of whether the thoughts cause the problem or the problem causes the thoughts. But we do know that utilising things such as CBT can increase sexual desire but what the evidence tells us is CBT has only been studied in the context of other approaches being applied as well such as sex therapy so it's more of an eclectic approach. Couples therapy is really important because again it's often it takes two to tango in this context but that focuses on the relationship and if a couple has predominant relationship problems prominent issues with their interactions that's the focus of the intervention and often someone complaining of low desire what they're really telling you is I'm not happy with my marriage or I'm not happy with my relationship. There's the psychodynamic element which really focuses focuses on past history, particularly for patients with complex trauma and abuse. But it's important to remember that one of the most important parts of that therapy is motivation. Because why would someone that's not interested in sex suddenly want to become interested? Because in most cases, that motivation is extrinsic, such as partner satisfaction. So it's important to help the patient develop intrinsic motivation for sex. So that means they need perceivable personal gains in order for therapy to be of use. So we need to facilitate an understanding and exploration of one's own sexuality rather than focusing on fixing something that's wrong. Thanks, Sama. I'm just going to open it up to Sean and Tim. Did you have any questions that you wanted to add in there? 
I was just thinking as, as you were talking there, Summer, is there any evidence around um, couples going through IVF? Because I see a lot, uh, well, an increasing number of couples who go through IVF and it becomes a very mm. perfunctory sexual act. What happens after that? Because I've seen a few difficulties. It's a good question. And I think there we, we really need to frame the question such as, is it really an issue of desire? Because the desire is really to do with receiving pleasurable stimulus. That's really what we're talking about. So in that context, what we're really trying to do is, one, you want to see how we frame the question appropriately and understanding it's okay to have sex for other purposes as well if you really want to. But the other element is also it provides a really good opportunity to look at the relationship dynamic, particularly if couples are asked to have more sex than they perhaps were used to in the past. But the other thing is also an exploration of their own inner desire and fantasies as well. So we can actually promote better sexual understanding between couples when they realise you can have sex for pleasure and not just for making babies. So just have a couple of minutes. Is there any questions from the floor? We might not have time to get to all of these. Who had their hand up first? Hi there. You've talked a lot about female um, libido issues. Have you? Are there many issues with this in the male population as well, just generally? It's a really good question, actually, and I think I, I will make the presumption that I've made this a quite a gendered, heteronormative discussion focusing on men and women being in relationships. The idea around male low libido is really more of a recent concept because traditionally people have seen male sexual function as performative, which is they perform an act and that's just natural to them and men just do it, and women are receptive and they just receive it because men are in front of them and that is just what happens. There is an increasing body of evidence around low desire in men, but there is an increased tendency we find to actually see concurrent psychological morbidity and we find that more men are less likely to perceive themselves as sexual or appropriate beings when they don't feel a desire to have sex as opposed to women. But I think it more speaks to society's influences and certainly some of the techniques and methods in that context really do mirror what we do for women because we do talk about couples counselling but we also talk about maladaptive thought processes as well. But when it comes to medication it's all Viagra so you can get an erection and you should be able to do it anyway. I feel like that might have been a segue to another episode, but yep, another question from there from the audience. So that was a really great talk. Thank you very much. I, I just like the way you skirted around the very first question. It took a long time to skirt around it, but I've lived with this burning statistic in my brain since I was at second year med school, and the, the physiology professor said that the average Australian couple has sex 2.4 times per week. There must be some statistics on it. What the evidence shows us is we understand what happens to couples early on in their sex life. No one really knows what happens after five years because no one's asked the question. One uh, last question, thanks. Cardiovascular medicine affecting the libido, to my mind, they all do affect. So I was wondering about your views on something which is really more likely than less likely. Really good question. I mean, I touched on beta blockers, but there's certainly some evidence around things like ACE inhibitors and sometimes statins. As I think statins comes up at least once a year in some journal or another. The, the reality is, I mean, I think these medications do affect desire to a degree. But the, the question I would always pose is, would stopping the medication fix the problem? And because desire is so multifactorial, it's often more to do with prioritisation of their medical health because you can't have sex if you've dropped dead from a heart attack anyway. Um, and at the end of the day, you really are looking at fixing appropriate sexual interactions and communication between people. So often people coming in saying the beta blocker has caused this problem is really a reflection of this is the first time I've come and asked this problem in the first place. So you can really help people explore that issue. 
All right, I just want to say thank you, Sama, um, for coming and chatting to us today. Um, it is always fantastic to ha sit down and have a chat Thanks, with Christina. you. Thank um, you. <laughs> uh, and we really appreciate your passion and expertise on the topic today, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you.